Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, it's me, your imaginary friend from childhood. I know I haven't spoken in a while. Just wanted to catch up and let you know that I'm actually doing really well. Lately, I've really been getting into this podcast. Before I continue my first ever journey through the Harry Potter series, just a few quick announcements. First, I'm very excited to announce that this Saturday, May 30th, I will be a part of Pod UK Goes Digital. It's a UK-based podcasting convention that had to go remote because of the world, but they're using this opportunity to put together a really fun live stream, and they're supporting the Birmingham Community Healthcare Charity along the way. Also, because it's remote, I get to be a part of it. My performance slot is at 5.30 p.m. BST, which is 12.30 p.m. Eastern Time, and I will be performing with none other than our very own UK correspondent, Dottie James, in a presentation we like to call a plethora of British quandaries with UK correspondent Dottie James. I found a website that marks every single difference between the UK and the US editions of the Harry Potter series, so for 30 minutes I'll just be asking Dottie James, what's up with all these British phrases that apparently we had to translate into American English for our books? I'll be posting more about this throughout the week on social media, so make sure you're just following Potterless somewhere, or you can just Google Pod UK Goes Digital to learn more. And speaking of doing things with people that are very nice to me, there's a whole bunch of nice people that help me keep doing this for a living, and that's all of our patrons, and we have new patrons to welcome to the team. So shout out to Michelle Fielding, Eden Stein, Jessica T, Trash Panda, Kelly Harris, Brynjar Bragi Einerson, Alicia Hughes, Caitlin Griffin, Katie Heron, The Lovely Loveless, Nicole Alin, Catherine Gibbs, Chloe Purvis, Isabel Zaden, Chris, Cyrus Johnson, Mary Tooley, Suomi, Mary, Ruby Highland, Brenda Brennan, Angela Louise, and the return of Stepanka Silanova. Shout out to Lena Durrell and Rachel Vaith who upgraded their pledge. A huge shout out to Casey Canales who upgraded to the producer level status as well as our new producer level patrons, Megan Stempin, and let's hit 1,000 patrons now so Shubes does a European tour. If you've never checked out the Patreon, it's been a longtime goal of mine that if we hit 1,000 patrons, I will go to the United Kingdom, I will do the WB Studio Tour, and while I'm there, I'll do some shows in Europe. Obviously, that's a bit up in the air now because of the world but once I hit a thousand patrons, it doesn't matter if we drop to 999 immediately after and never hit it again, I will for sure do a Europe tour. You have my word. So these three new producers join the ranks of Vicky, Aaron, Clown, Marchismo, Samantha, Juan, Rosemary, Maria, Romina, Audra, Eleanor, Nikita, Ali, Amelia, Sarah, Ben, Rachel, Zachary, Orchid, Vivian, Haley, Alex, John, Noel, Liz, Brandon, Claire, Rory, Veronica, Lada, Noah, Tracy, Colleen, Jennifer, Friday, Summer, Justin, Jacob, Maya, Mark, Polly, Zena, Harlan, Noelia, Addie, Nikki, Kine, Amanda, Alicia, Kafir, Sarah, Marta, Eileen, Keegan, Mr. Folk, Maya, Floor, Siri, Georgia, Skyla, Adele, Professor, Threat, Ellie, Elizabeth, Michael, Kelly, Carrie, Connie, Jen, Nedry, Will, Samantha, Aurora, Marcos, Courtney, Marique, Ashton, Brittany, Phelan, The Meadows Family, Jenny, McKenna, Heather, Brad, Thomas, Brianna, Kevin, Laurie, Chrissy, Yarl, Ashley, Peter, Sophie, Jen, and Callahan, Leah, Melissa, Bella, Melanie, Elizabeth, Britt, Becca, Reese, Adam, Joseph, Lily's mom, Tyrone, Money, Madison, Kyle, Tonks, GK, Sabrina, Sophia, Farzan, Melanie, David, Matt, Okamahime, Yimki, Boney, Pony, Jacob, Kelsey, Taco, Bluefish, Rike, Taylor, Rochelle, Megan, Alicia, Riley, Colleen, Laurel, Rossanne, Erica, Miranda, Landon, Kendra, Natanya, Yogan, Darcy, Richard, Sandra, Craig, Andren, K, Steve, Lior, Angela, Julia, Demi, Kelsey, Michael, Danae, Michelle, Callista, Kringle, Love, Kesh, Jennifer, Crystal, Henrika, Jeremy, Delkis, Katrina, Jerrica, Steamed Nuggets, and Can't I Potter? Who never forget to brush their teeth in the morning until it's embarrassingly late in the afternoon. If you want to be like one of these amazing patrons and get access to bonus episodes, I'm posting some stuff from some live shows that happened that might not become episodes ever, who's to say? Or director's commentary, exclusive merchandise, and more, you can head on over to patreon.com slash Potterless. But without further ado, let's get into episode 127 of Potterless, covering the Broadway impact of Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, guest starring Variety's Gordon Cox. Hello, Internet, and welcome back to another episode of Potterless, the tale of a 28-year-old man who never read the Harry Potter series as a kid. He read them as an adult, and then he also saw a play that he had to go to twice on consecutive days. My name is Mike Schubert. I'm that grown man, and that play we're talking about is Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. We've already discussed the experience. We'll be discussing the plot. But for today's episode, I have brought on a wonderful human being, Gordon Cox, who is the host of Stagecraft with Gordon Cox, as well as the contributor 
contributing theater editor at Variety to talk about Cursed Child's impact on theater and Broadway. So, Gordon, how's it going? It's going great. How are you? I'm doing very well, all things considered. Uh, I have not left my apartment for anything that isn't groceries. Sure. Yeah, like all of us. Or the occasional exercise. Yeah. (laughs) Just trying to stay as safe as we can. And we can commiserate in this new world we're living in because I'm living in a world where there's no basketball and I am very sad. And now you are living in a world where there is no Broadway. So just in general, what is it the same kind of thing where it's just on indefinite hold and no one knows what's happening or what's the situation? That, that's exactly it. The uh, Broadway um, was finally sort of, it was trying to hold out as long as it could, partially because it would take a declaration from someone like the governor shutting them down to for to allow producers to claim certain insurances. So like uh. if they voluntarily closed the show because of coronavirus, then they wouldn't have gotten the same insurance uh coverage protection. So that sucks so much. Yeah. So um I was I mean I was at shows every night up until the shutdown um and feeling less and less excited about sitting in a dark room full of, you know, international travelers who had come to uh he would just pass through airports to yeah you know sit next to me for several hours and we were all in packed in a tight room oh uh, very fun yay good experience <laughs> it was for the best that it happened but now mm-hmm. it feels very strange because it was we were just getting into the kind of ramp up of the super busy kind of tony award season there were going to be all these sort of great big shows that a lot of people were very excited about opening in the spring and now they're a couple of them have gotten canceled some of mm. them have gotten move to the fall like a lot of them are still sort of up in the air the the last declared date for when broadway was hoping to get started again was april i think 12th or 13th but we don't think that's going to happen uh right. people are starting to talk about the summer which is a big deal Hey, it's me, Editing Mike. If you couldn't tell by Gordon referring to April 12th as in the future, we recorded this back in mid-March, which was roughly 13 decades ago, I believe, at this point. So just a heads up, some of the things we're saying here might not make a whole lot of sense, seeing that this episode is coming out on May 25th. Anyway, back to the podcast. Then, once it is back up and running, one of the things that keeps Broadway so healthy is the tourism industry, and tourism is going to take a really long time to get back to the heights that it was, you know, just last month. For the theater industry, everybody knows that this is the right thing to do, and nobody, everybody wants everybody to be safe and everything, but also lots of people are very concerned about their job and right. how they will make a living and all that stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, enough fun talk. Let's get down to business <laughs> <laughs> and talk about Harry Potter and the Cursed Child. So I had the opportunity to see this play (laughs) after dropping hundreds of dollars to go to two shows, which I was super thrilled about. Wait, were you or were you like... No, gosh, no. I'm trying to... I'm doing my taxes right now and I'm trying to get it written off as a business expense. But that's 100% <laughs> legit. You can totally okay, have good, them call good, me. Good, good, good. They... <laughs> I mean, I, I knew I was going to see it. I had heard bad things about it. I Basically, what I had heard is what is summed up so perfectly. I did some research on a very reputable website called wikipedia.org mm. and there is a great summation under the reception that I think just puts it perfectly. It says, quote, some audiences and critics have complimented the casting and performances while many debate the quality of the piece and how it compares to the entries in the main Harry Potter series. Hmm. Yes. And that was the general vibe that I heard. I heard the uproar of how bad reading the script was, but everyone else assured me that all of the other stuff is great, such as the set design and the costumes and the music and all this other stuff. But as I often say, that is to me like someone telling you to go to a cheeseburger place and saying, well, you know, the meat is rancid, but oh, dude, the lettuce is so good and the pickles are great. Like, sure, I I get that the other things are nice, but I would think that the plot would be the most important part. And that appears to be lacking. Sure. And a lot of sort of really prominent theater critics, uh, both in London and in New York, were really swayed by all the stuff that you considered, you know, the bun and the pickles, because the meat of the story are things we are, I'm on the younger end of sort of the people who go see theater for a living in the sort of New York journalism world. And so we're talking about like 50, 60 year olds, and they don't have the connection to the Harry Potter stories. They didn't really care a whole lot about the plot. Like they're not invested in you know, the time turning and the what are they changing in the canon and all that stuff. Like, they're far more interested. And as much as they could, as much as all of us could be aware that maybe this 
the show didn't need to be two parts and it's twice as complicated as it needs to be and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> Only twice. It was, yeah. <laughs> we were all sort of taken, including myself, by the slickness and the smoothness and the sort of genuine theatrical magic that is different from like illusions and tricks, but mm-hmm. the genuine sort of rush of the production, I think, struck surprise, especially the critics in London. They were all very surprised by how artistic it was, actually. Like, it was genuinely good theater making, right. like, regardless of what you thought of the script. Sure, sure, sure. The questions that I have, mainly, I want, I kind of want to go in chronological order of this play's birth and where it lives now. And I was looking up some information about when it opened. So most of this, I will be discussing a Broadway elements of it because I am American and I don't understand West End and I kind of understand Broadway. I've seen like seven plays. Look at me, true New Yorker that okay. I am. <laughs> I entered the lottery for Hamilton every day for three consecutive years. And then Kelly and I put it on our registry and someone got us tickets and now we can't go. No. <laughs> Oh, so yeah. great. <laughs> yeah, that one will definitely be back, though. So don't worry. Yeah, I, I'm not too concerned. <laughs> but from my research, it said that it opened on Broadway in April of 2018 at the Lyric Theater. And it said that when it moved to the Lyric Theater, that they removed 400 seats from the auditorium and moved the entrance to 43rd Street. True. Is this a normal thing that theaters do, or is this a Harry Potter thing because the set was so big? It's it's definitely not normal. Okay. A startlingly expensive thing to do. And part of that is... The theater itself uh, has had a number of names over the years. I think it started as the Foxwoods, and then it was the... Anyway, it's not a particularly (laughs) old theater. It opened with Ragtime in sort of the late 90s, uh, early aughts, and it was a Hilton theater for a while, like the hotel chain. Anyway, interesting. big. It was always considered the sort of, not the best uh, house to have a show in because it was basically a barn. It was this giant space with like a huge stage that felt really far away from all the Mm -hmm. seats, sort of no matter where you were seated. Like the show felt very far away. It just sort of felt more like an arena than it did a stage. And that was about sort of just the layout of the room. And um, it was very hard to get a show to stick around there, in part because the connection with the audience wasn't there, is is a lot of the thinking. I've seen uh, Harry Potter both at its theater in London and in New York. Oh, cool. It is such a vastly different space, and it's so it basically picks up this very this much more intimate feeling West End theater layout and like plops it in this former barn. It was a total transformation and it was quite shocking. And it's very comfortable and it's very expensive. And part of the reason that the theater owners were willing to do it is that the theater owners are affiliated with the British producer uh, who is behind the show. And so and they were very confident that if they renovated this theater, they would have a show that would last for years, theoretically. And it would also maybe help them solve the problem of this giant barn of a theater that (laughs) a lot of producers, frankly, didn't want because they couldn't figure out a way to make it work for whatever show they had to come in. Yeah, I will say that it is, when I went in, it felt very different from every other Broadway play that I've seen because every other play that I've seen felt like I was on top of the stage. I feel like most Mm. Broadway theaters I've been to are very vertical crowd and it almost felt like I was going to fall on the stage. I saw the lifespan of a fact, whichever theater that was in, because Daniel Radcliffe was in it. Kelly and I got some last minute tickets and we were almost all the way in the back and I felt like I was going to fall out of my chair. Like It was a very steep balcony. Yep. So the Lyric Theater, it did feel very far away, almost a little too far away, where I felt that my seats, which were promised according to the Ticketmaster situation to be pretty good, I still felt quite far away from the stage. And that is closer, that is still closer than you would have felt had you been sitting in the same place in the old layout of that theater. It's a significant improvement, if you can believe it. That's good, that's good. Yeah, so it definitely felt very different, and the building looks very different. You're right, just walking from it outside, I used to live in Hell's Kitchen, so I'd walk past Mm. all of the plays where they're all at and the building for Harry Potter is enormous they've got the big wings on the outside and all of that it definitely looks very different yeah you mentioned it being very expensive according to the New York Times it estimates that it was the most expensive non-musical Broadway play ever with 68 million dollars in opening costs yes some of that is the is the in fact quite a lot of that is the theater the cost for renovating that theater what would be a normal play's opening costs a really expensive play would be like you can do a Broadway play for 
three or four million, depending hmm. on the size of the cast. Like that Daniel Radcliffe play, which I quite liked. Actually. It was wonderful. Um, he was so good. Yeah, it was like a, it was like a small cast. It was a um, didn't have a massive set demands. Um, you know, they can probably get away with that between three and five, which is uh, you know, and the number keeps going up year by year, obviously. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, the demands of this Harry Potter and the Cursed Child is are more like a musical just through it is the size of the cast and there's you know a lot of sort of technical demands and there are all sorts of things so if Moulin Rouge is a very expensive musical and that's uh somewhere around 30 million maybe a little more and that's a lot yeah the sort of average for a large-scale musicals should really be in the, like, 12 million, 15 million range, <laughs> all of which is quite a lot of money for, um, and we all sort of acknowledge that, 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 you know, it's a really expensive endeavor, and chances are you're not going to get your money back unless you are producing Harry Potter. With, uh, recogni- <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that happens to be two shows, <laughs> so twice as much money. Right. So the next segment that I have is titled, Are These People Important? Uh, so I've written down all of the people involved in the play, mm-hmm. and I'm hoping your expertise can tell me if these people matter or if it was a big deal, because the only one I recognized was Imogen Heap, who did the music. <laughs> uh, but right. everything else, I'm not well-versed enough. So it says the script is by Jack Thorne. And then the story is also by Thorne. Is he a big deal? This is kind of the thing that made him a big deal. Although he was respected and sort of risk-taking and more experimental almost uh, writer than I think they might have gone with. Like they could have gone with a more commercial writer, but he is not someone who... Like, he takes risks, and he does weird things, and Mm -hmm. he's got, like, weird sort of slightly edgy tastes. And is quite smart and interesting. But this is the thing that really made him a giant deal because it's he has written a giant hit. Yes. And then the story was also by John Tiffany, who also directed it. He's British. Is he a big deal? He is a big deal. Okay. Similarly, uh, he is occasionally sort of, well, he's, he's artsy and he's um, risk-taking and he has already had quite a bit of acclaim both on the West End and uh, in the U.S. He okay. first sort of came to notice, God, probably 15 years ago, maybe a little less for this uh, production called Black Watch mm. um, that involved this sort of startling moment where uh, like it starts out and they're playing pool and then all of a sudden a soldier like climbs out of the green of the pool table, oh. like rips it out. It's super <laughs> awesome. Like he's always, all of his uh, stuff has a sort of surprising visual and often kind of associative flair. He did a production of The Glass Menagerie that um, had some great actors in it and and sort of took the setting that, the Tennessee Williams is very specific about his setting, but he sort of both adhered to that and gave it sort of this weird dreamlike, like there was quite a bit of water on stage just to sort of make Ooh, it a kind of dreamy memory okay. feel. He's quite smart. Um, okay, good. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So he was a big deal. Sweet. He, oh, he directed a musical called Once as well. Okay, I've heard of Once. It's also a TV show, <laughs> and that's and it's not the same thing. <laughs> oh, they're not the same thing, I don't think. <laughs> so it also says the choreography is by Stephen Hodgett. Is he a big deal? Oh, yes. He is a big deal. He's a stellar, stellar choreo. I think he's possibly the best choreographer working Ooh, today or one of the best. Right. Today. Like he is, he is really, really good at what he does, and he can do everything from... Like he did American Idiot. Yes, I saw that, which made me very excited. Yeah. As someone that loved Green Day as a as a youngster, I've heard that the American Idiot play was kind of I don't I don't know if ahead of its time is the right thing, but I I heard it was like it was good but didn't get respected kind of vibes. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I think people liked it. It didn't quite find a way to exist on Broadway. Like mm. you not only sort of have to be good, but you have to find your audience and get them to Broadway, especially if they are people who don't necessarily think of coming to Broadway for their entertainment. So um, punk rock to Broadway, not, not easy. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but Stephen Hoggett is spectacular and he can do everything from that sort of really sort of showy, uh, American idiot stuff. And then he does like small gestural stuff for things like once. And he did that sting musical, the last ship, or actually the, um, my favorite part was the choreography. Okay. Okay. So he's a big deal. And then I know that the next person, Christine Jones, who did set design, I know that she is a big deal because she also did spring awakening and she did American idiot. Yes, that's true. Yes. She is a Tony winner and she does actually pretty spectacular work in Harry Potter. That set is really cool. Looks very simple and is definitely not. does an amazing number of things. Yeah. I think the set is probably my favorite thing out of 
almost everything. It's really fantastic. And is it common for people to kind of work together? Like, is it just coincidence that these two, the choreographer and the set designer, happen to be an American idiot? Or is it like assistant coaches in the NBA where people kind of form clumps and then work in groups? Yeah, people have collaborators uh, or sort of regular collaborators. And it's not that they don't work with other people, but they have kind of a team. It is often the team that uh, sort of got together on kind of their first big hit or something, you know, like they sort of find themselves and they have a really good rapport and they stick with it. Okay. Okay. The only other instance I know of this is that a couple of the people in the Hades town cast were in that amazing tragedy of a Spider-Man play. That's true. That is actually, I think more of a coincidence. Okay. Than anything else. <laughs> Nothing makes me more upset than me not living in New York earlier than not being able to see that play because I would have been there every night. It was a thing to behold. <laughs> uh, I'm so envious. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so jealous. <laughs> it says the costume design was by Katrina Lindsay, who doesn't even have a Wikipedia hyperlink, so I don't know if she's important. As she is a working costume designer. Okay. Costume designers in general are sort of lesser known than a lot of the people who contribute to Broadway shows, mm-hmm. but she is a prominent working costume designer. Okay, sweet. And then we've touched on Imogen Heap for the music, but then finally, lighting designed by Neil Austin. Is he a big deal? He's quite good. Okay. He is one of those, like, very good. If he hasn't won a Tony, you know, he will any minute now. I'm pretty sure he has, actually, but he's just known for sort of very tasteful and very sharp work. Nice. Okay, great. Thank you for enlightening me in the section of Are These People Important? I I was looking into more of some of the acclaim and the awards and all stuff like that, and, and something that appears to be universally beloved from the character to the performance to the actor is Scorpius Malfoy. And I agree. I think that was... From the character perspective, I think that was my favorite part of the play. And there were a lot of write-ups about Anthony Boyle, the original Scorpius. Mm-hmm. And the Wall Street Journal says that he makes gave a career-making performance. And then, I don't know if you know this person at Variety, Matt Truman? Sure, Matt Truman, absolutely. Said it was the breakout performance. It's Boyle who really stands out. So... Has Anthony Boyle done anything? Because when I was looking around his Wikipedia, it didn't look like he had done much except for get a couple of side character roles in some TV shows since. I don't know of anything big, but it is definitely the thing that put him on people's map. And I wouldn't be surprised if he shows up as the, you know, star of a TV show or something like that any kind of any minute now. Okay. A big Broadway role doesn't necessarily always lead to your next thing being a giant gig. But sure. theoretically, it gets him in the door with uh, uh, you know a lot of creators and producers and industry people that could lead to other things. Okay. So speaking of the industry, I'm wondering, and I don't know if you have any insight into this, as to when this play came onto the scene in Broadway, what was, I guess, from the theater community, were other plays, like in my world, I'm imagining that other plays dislike this play because it's, it's from Harry Potter and it's outside, and it's two plays, and it feels like a tourist attraction and a cash grab. Was there any sort of animosity or just people going, oh, it's the Harry Potter play? Or did people respect it as if, you know, it was Hamilton coming to town? There was less of sort of industry scorn than something like the first time Disney came to Broadway. uh, (laughs) People were very unkind. Um, And it took years for Disney to sort of earn its reputation in the industry to Mm -hmm. show that they're actually you know, they're sticking around, they're in for the long haul, and they can do something like The Lion King, which takes sort of big artistic risks and things like that. Part of it is the producing team. There's a woman named Sonia Friedman, who is a very busy uh, UK-based producer who produces on both sides of the Atlantic. And she's teamed up with a guy named Colin Callender, who is also a theater producer and a TV producer. He was kind of a very important executive in HBO at the very beginning of HBO becoming the kind of TV. Yeah, like, he's like... One of the major reasons that HBO exists in the way that it exists today. And so they're very smart and they have a very good eye for talent and sort of business opportunities and things like that. So the fact that they are well-liked and extremely well-respected in the industry helped. It also helped that the show opened in London and got raves and won a ton of awards. And I just remember reading that part of my job is editing the theater reviews of Variety. And I remember Matt Truman sending that review in from London and I was reading it and I was not expecting it to be a rave. And it was. And so I think everybody who hadn't, you know, seen it yet at the time kind of perked up. So by the time it came in, it was actually the thing that other 
plays maybe wanted to get out of the way of in terms of like oh that's gonna suck up all the oxygen of the season it's like, the I summer can't... blockbuster of broadway no one exactly. wants to be in the same weekend as it okay i've got it correct <laughs> that's exactly right that was what i recall being sort of the biggest thing it was both of a kind of anticipation because it is like hamilton it is a thing that gets first timers to Broadway and Mm -hmm. the way to keep the industry going is to get to expose new people to Broadway Mm -hmm. and to have, you know, maybe two out of 10 of them discover, Oh, Hey, I actually quite like going to see plays. And then Ah, they go see some other stuff. Let me go see dear Evan Hansen. Let me learn about the casted boy. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. Okay. Nice. All right. Well, I, I, I would love a good beef, but I guess I also understand people appreciating it for bringing in new butts into seats yeah and you know that everyone has their opinions about the create the well as you said the story element mm-hmm, of it right. and the you know all that stuff and sure it's longer than it needs to be and doesn't need to be two parts unclear that but, was my next know, question like, is all caps two plays really first off is this a common thing i think i've heard of only one other play that split into two parts and i did the classic pretend to know what play that person was talking about and go oh yeah and then immediately forget afterwards what that play is right it's not a common thing. Angels okay. in America is the that, most yep, kind of that's prominent. It. Mm-hmm. I of pretended them. to know what that was so I would look smart in a conversation. <laughs> yeah. And Angels in America is a genuine masterpiece. It is, you know, one of the best plays written in the last 30 years. It definitely did not make any money on Broadway. Like it oh. is a big ask to do two plays, the original production anyway, which is legit one of the best things I've ever seen. Okay. The person I was talking to said it was very, very good and totally worth being two plays and justified to be so. Absolutely. It's extraordinary. It's seven and a half hours. And I, yeah. Yeah, Harry Potter is short compared. But it was a big ask um, of audiences to come in and sit for three and a half hours to this really challenging piece of work. Mm -hmm. And it is amazing. And no one involved in that show regrets doing it, even though probably all the producers lost their money. Like, and no, but no one will regret it. Okay. So it's, it's not a common thing. Like there was a play called The Inheritance, which is kind of, uh, nods toward Angels in America that just happened uh, this season. Yeah, I saw signs for it in Subway ads. Yeah, it's also two parts, but that also didn't do great. And it was quite well acclaimed. You know, it's hard to get, it's a lot of money, right? It's yes. a lot of money, it's a lot of time, and finding an audience that can sustain it for longer than, you know, three months or something is is a challenge. What I found frustrating, and it totally makes sense, but it's still bugged me is that the way in which you have to see the two consecutive parts is not very flexible. It's it's, you have to go Monday and then Tuesday or Thursday and then Friday or Saturday morning, afternoon or Sunday morning and afternoon. And I was just like, can't I just pick like go one Saturday and then go the next Saturday for the second part? But I totally understand why that wouldn't make sense. That was my biggest frustration when I was trying to get tickets for it. The flexibility wasn't there. Well, that's that's hard too, actually. You're not wrong. Like that actually, what if your one night off is Monday night? Right. I like what how are you gonna see part two? You know, like it's mm-hmm. it's a challenge. Yeah, for sure. Another thing I noted about the play is that they brought almost the entire cast over from West End to Broadway when they launched it here. Is this something that other plays do? Is this common or is this a big deal that a, that almost an entire cast was transplanted for a, a new city's run? It depends on the play, but it's not a huge deal. It's a okay. thing that you have to kind of be able to argue for with Actors' Equity, which is the Actors' Union here in the U.S. You know, you have to, you have, to have a really good reason for taking these jobs away from American actors, mm-hmm. or at least not offering them to these American actors, at least not at first. And, you know, and the acclaim of Harry Potter and of a cast, I think, merited it. I'm sure they didn't have any difficulty convincing the union because once that original cast leaves, all those roles will be played by American actors. Right. And that, sh- if Harry Potter continues to be successful, it will continue to keep American actors employed the way Phantom of the Opera does oh, and all those yeah, other yeah, long-running yeah. shows. Okay, okay, that makes sense, that makes sense. It does make sense, past Mike, and past Gordon, I agree, people staying employed is very nice. Speaking of, we gotta take a little bit of a break so I can stay employed for Wingardium Adoridosa. Mm-hmm. 
Today's episode of Potterless is brought to you by Backblaze. So let's say hypothetically that you are hosting a Harry Potter podcast and you just recorded three episodes worth of content with a very special guest and you want to make sure that everything is saved. So you plug in your external hard drive to back up your computer. And what's this? Your laptop has crashed right as you've plugged in your external hard drive? Oh no, you should have used Backblaze. Yes, this is a true story that happened to me. Yes, everything ended up being okay, but it was an annoying process. And if I used Backblaze earlier, it would not have been annoying. Backblaze is unlimited computer backup for Macs and PCs for just $6 a month. You can backup documents, music, photos, videos, drawing projects, all of your data, maybe big podcast episodes that you just recorded. I've used Backblaze. I really like it. It just runs in the background and automatically saves stuff so you don't have to worry about remembering to plug in your external hard drive on a regular basis. And if you ever need to restore your files, you can do so by directly downloading them or they can send you a physical item in the mail like a USB stick or an external hard drive to plug into your computer. And then boom, your computer is restored. Backblaze has over an exabyte of data backed up by its users. And if you don't know what an exabyte is, it's 1 billion gigabytes. Lots of people are doing it, and you can be one of those too. As a Potterless listener, if you go to backblaze.com slash Potterless, you can get a fully featured 15-day trial for no cost. All you have to do is go to backblaze.com slash Potterless. You can try it out, see how you like it, and then you can upgrade to a pro account, which is still only $6 a month. That's not much. That's less than most sandwiches at this point. And you can start backing up your files in the easiest way possible. So to start that 15-day trial, go to backblaze.com slash Potterless and make sure that your laptop doesn't explode when you're trying to save it after recording a Potterless episode today. And now you'll hear words from a few sponsors who make it feasible for me to be a full-time podcaster. Some of these ads will be read by me, others of them won't. The ones that aren't are inserted locally, so if you live internationally, don't be surprised if you hear an ad in your country's native language. And once those ads are complete, we'll get back to this episode of Potterless. This episode of Potterless is brought to you by Arena Club. Now, if you listen to this podcast, it should be no secret that I am both a sports nerd and more of a traditional nerd. And when you think of these two types of nerddom, there's one thing that links them together, and that is card collecting. Whether you are looking to buy, trade, sell, or display a card collection of sports cards or Pokemon cards, you should check out Arena Club. ArenaClub.com is the place where you can do all of these things. I have recently made a purchase on the market marketplace. I got Lieutenant Surge's Raichu, which is my favorite Pokemon, and I didn't even know that there was a Lieutenant Surge version of the Raichu. So that is a card that I now have, and it's not just some digital thing. I can have this card physically mailed to me. So there's a bunch of cool stuff you can do with Arena Club, including their slab packs. If you have ever done any sort of card collecting, you know that ripping packs or repacks can be a zero transparency type of thing where you're just hoping you get some sort of cool card. But what's nice about the slab packs with Arena Club is that you have full transparency. You see what available cards are there, what your percentage of getting them is, what the gradings are, so it is not a complete black box. You're going into this knowing what cards you might get. And I've been using Arena Club, and it's pretty cool. It's very easy for me to look up different cards. I can favorite them, see what I want, and then whenever I want them shipped to me, I can get them shipped to me, and then I'll have the physical versions of them. Right now, you can get 10% off your first purchase by going to arenaclub.com slash Wow, that is a wild offer. 10% off a $400 slab pack is 40 bucks. Right there. Wow. Anyways, that's a rush slash Potterless for 10% off your first purchase. That's a wild flexing off a $40 Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free to play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device, or play on PC through Facebook games. About it doing well and everything, I know that recently they had to rebrand it a little bit and they did that Times Square thing that I was thankfully out of town for <laughs> because I lived in Hell's Kitchen at the time, very close to Times Square. That would have been a nightmare where they did the whole Dementor thing and now all the, mm. the program looks different, all this other stuff. I heard rumblings that the rebrand was because the play wasn't doing super well and I saw some things where they were reducing ticket prices and stuff like that. Do you know if that's true? Is the play doing okay? Is it struggling? It is not doing as well as I think people thought it would. Okay. Notably declined uh, in its its sort of second year on Broadway. Mm -hmm. And that surprised a lot of people because they 
really all of Broadway sort of thought, well, now it's just we're just going to have a massive hit and it's going to make a ton of money mm-hmm. and uh, for the next you know years and years and years. And now it seems like it seems like they might be having some challenges getting people to come out for this you know expensive two part play. The things they are doing with reducing pricing of things could be a thing that uh, helps the show settle and like should help it find itself, you know, a sustainable level and assuming that it can kind of make back its weekly running costs plus a bit more mm-hmm. like that it can sort of find a way to, you know, hang out for a while longer. It just stopped being the kind of massive box office busting uh, success week after week after week, which I think came sooner in the process than everyone thought it would. Yeah, here's my big tinfoil hat conspiracy about why it happened, is that initially you have all the big Harry Potter fans that are going to consume anything Harry Potter, and they're going to see it the earliest chance that they can. They don't care if it's two parts, eight parts, 12 parts, a billion dollars, they're going to see it. But I feel like by having two parts, you're lowering the barrier of entry of who wants to see the play. I feel like you are not appealing to just the casual fan that either just wants to see a Broadway play or, oh yeah, I kind of like Harry Potter. I feel like they've kind of put themselves in this box of, you have to really like it to see a play where the story isn't super beloved and then also you're going to be spending twice as much time and money. Because just even say you're going to New York for a weekend, if you're going to see Harry Potter, that is most of your weekend. Because it's three hours each night just for the play. And so you're probably committing four and a half hours. So that's nine hours of your weekend is just seeing a play. It feels like they kind of put themselves into a corner by making it two parts. I mean, I think that's not wrong. It certainly initially was part of the thing that made it an event, right? Mm -hmm. That made it kind of a massive attention getter. But now I think that's exactly right. I feel like there are people who, um, you know, might be interested in maybe checking out one Harry Potter show or maybe... It's also a challenge for sort of the kind of older, inveterate theater goers who don't really care about Harry Potter and might have heard some good things about the production. But if the choice is they're coming, as you say... Because tourism is such a big part of the business, like, Mm -hmm. oh, no, you've got two days to see shows, and I'd rather see two shows than just the one, especially if I'm not sure that I really care about Harry Potter. Exactly. Okay. I'm glad to have my big conspiracy. Yeah, I think that's not wrong. (laughs) Confirmed. (laughs) So as far as awards, just looking at the award history, both for the West End version as well as the Broadway one, it appeared to clean up quite well, bringing in a lot of different awards and Tonys and all of that. This is just me being unfamiliar with Tony Awards and stuff. Are there Tony Awards for best screenplay and stuff? Because it didn't seem to even get nominated for anything remotely related to the script. Well, that's the... There's a category called Best Play. Yes, and it won that. Traditionally, that is an award for the script. I mean, that's the... the that's the play. Yes, but because it is a new play and because so much of how a play is received, like this Harry Potter play, is about all the stuff around it and all the elements and all the sort of creative vision that goes into creating a work for the very first time, it it can be as much an award for, you know, creative producing and a kind of thrilling staging and all that stuff as it is for that script. Because I had not read the script when I, I still haven't read, sat down to read the script, but I remember sitting. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I remember sitting in the show the first time and thinking, wow, I cannot imagine reading that. Like I was thrilled to be there and (laughs) thought to myself, this must be the worst reading experience. Okay. Was there something about watching it that you could tell just because it's so frantic or what made you come to that thought? Because you can sort of tell so it was always the words that felt like the clunky things okay. uh, for me. And also all my favorite moments were nonverbal. Like my favorite right. moment in the yeah. show is when the two boys kind of have a fight and they're not allowed to see each other anymore. And they like, they do this like staircase thing. Mm-hmm, they call it the mm-hmm. staircase ballet, the people who made the show. Oh, and that's it, a great name for it. They just like move some staircases around and some boys run up and down some stairs. And like the first time I saw it, I cried. I cried. <laughs> and like, even like the few words that you would use to describe that in a script would be totally unmoving. Right. Um, and yeah. so it's just the thing that made it extraordinary, I could tell, was not there on the page. Okay. So there, there's just no Tony Award for best script? You know, there 
there kind of isn't, weirdly. I, that seems I mean, really strange as yeah. someone that knows nothing about the Tonys. I mean, it's mostly it is considered that the best play award uh-huh. mostly goes to the writer, although, you know, the producers' names are in there and all that. But um, in the case of something like Harry Potter, that is clearly an award for the production overall and for the risk of the endeavor and the artistic success of the endeavor and uh, the ambition and all that stuff. It's not just about the words on the page. Okay. So it won for best play in 2018. Was there something else that was nominated that felt snubbed? Was there a green book situation where people were mad that it won best play? Or Shape of Water, which I will never forgive for beating Get Out for Best Picture. There was not. Okay. And that is as much of the reason that it won. I mean, in, in addition to, you know, it deserves it for a lot of the work it does. There was not a major other contender. There were sort of well-respected plays that were maybe slightly imperfect. You know, there was an Aedoctar play called Junk that was really interesting, but, you know, sort of challenging and about the financial world. And there were a couple of British plays that were also very, there was one called Farinelli and the King, and there was uh, The Children by Lucy Kirkwood, which were interesting plays, and people quite liked them, but they didn't have the kind of universal acclaim and kind of enthusiasm. Okay, But if there, I think it would have been a different race, I still think probably Harry Potter would have run. But had there been a new play that people really, really adore, you know, more traditional new play with a really great script, particularly with an American writer, that would have been a serious challenger in the way that the other plays that year on the nominee list were good plays and deserve nominations, but uh, probably weren't going to beat Harry Potter. Okay, okay. As far as where it lives now, by your estimation or your read on the Broadway scene, do you think that Harry Potter is going to stick around or do you think that it could get to a point where it's not making enough money and we're living in a world where it's going away? Or is it going to be cats where it's here forever and we're confused as to why? Right now, actually, I don't know. Oh, right. Especially because it's on pause for who knows how long. Yeah. And because it that's one of the shows whose business was fueled by tourists and we'll have to see how how much tourism tanks uh in the wake of all this but you know i will say that it's a massively successful kind of production globally and so which means you know its producers have deep pockets and the sort of venture overall has deep pockets and there is a value a kind of marketing and a branding value to having a broadway outpost that could be as compelling as the sort of box office returns of that individual production in New York. So there are multiple reasons why it could stay even after it stops being the like astonishing record-breaking hit that it was at the very beginning. Okay. But you know, right now, who the hell knows? Like nobody yeah. knows what uh what's gonna stick around. And if they had arrived at the decision that two plays was hurting it, do you think that there would be a world where it changes its approach and condenses it into one night? Is that something that even could or would happen in Broadway? Or do you think it's a matter of it'll be two plays or it'll be zero plays? I mean, never say never. I it's It would be a startling thing and possibly a very clever thing to do. I mean, oh. it, it's not unusual for shows to tinker over long runs like Les Mis very Les Miserables very famously ran something like three and a half hours or something like a long time and union rules declare that any show over three hours invokes overtime for everyone involved like oh, backstage and on stage okay. so it was very expensive and then business sort of it was still going but it wasn't it was sort of started to trickle off and so they cut it was a good 10 or 15 minutes, if I remember correctly. And they came uh-huh. in just under the wire. And then suddenly <laughs> it was less expensive. And then suddenly they needed to make less money. And then they were making their nut. And they could oh, stick around for a while longer. Okay. And so, like, so, stuff like that happens. <laughs> Say one day more, just a few fewer times. Exactly. That's exactly right. <laughs> it has never happened to the extent where they take two plays and they shove them together. Mm-hmm. One might argue the experience could benefit from that. It wouldn't. It actually wouldn't surprise me. Ooh, okay. It would be unprecedented but also as i said possibly quite clever blaze some trails do it exactly there is a lot of fat that can be trimmed (laughs) the trolley witch thing 
doesn't need to happen. True. All of the dancing transitions, when I was watching it with Kelly, every single time they did a transition where there was no point to it except for people walking across the stage and doing wand things or flailing and flaring yeah. their robes around. I was just sitting in my chair like, if you didn't have this, it could be one play. It's really true. It's a lot of cape twirling. Yeah, there's so much of it. There's so much. But hey, you know, that's the choreography, which, you know, he's the best in the biz. So what do you mean? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and it is as a like sort of feat of interlocked teamwork and synchronization. It is actually pretty extraordinary. It is cool. It's very hard what they are doing. Sure. It is also arguable that they could do quite a lot less of it. Right. Nothing about it was, oh man, everything looks cool, but it's just, do we need all of this? Mm, Yes. (laughs) Does all of this need to be in here? So yeah, JK, if you need someone to help you trim down the script, hire us mm. we're happy to do so we can we can help you blaze that trail <laughs> yeah. and set a new precedent oh man well this has been great this has been very educational i feel like i've learned a lot about where it stands in broadway currently how it came onto the scene i've learned a lot i hope all the listeners have learned a lot the final question that i have while i have you is not about this particular play but why did the heathens at the schubert theater spell schubert wrong it's troubled me for years. They spell it S-H-U-B-E-R-T. Yo, that's uh, true. That's I'm true. I'm S-C-H-U-B-E-R-T. And people have spelled my last name wrong my entire life. And I blame whoever the Schubert family organization, whatever. I I, I despise them. I mean, I'm not <laughs> sure they had a choice. That is how they, <laughs> that is, uh, you'd have to go back to some ancestor, I imagine. <laughs> yeah, I, that's a really good question. <laughs> and have you thought that maybe you're the one doing it wrong? Just just a suggestion. I've thought about it, but then my great, 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 probably not related to me, Uncle Franz Schubert, the composer, spells it with a C, mm-hmm, and he came mm-hmm, first, yeah. so I feel like he's correct. Solid, solid. <laughs> the one time it did come to help us is one of my favorite stories. My uncle, he was running late to see a play with my aunt And whatever play it was, they were very strict about if you don't show up by the time we've closed the doors, you have to wait till intermission. And he had gotten there just after a show had started. And he went to the ticket booth and said, hey, I'm Jack Schubert. Uh, I'm meeting my wife, Linda, in there. I know the play just started. And they thought he was the Jack Schubert, Schubert. I guess. A Schubert. And someone came out and they're oh my, Mr. Schubert right away. And they like snuck him in down the hall, gave him to the seat. They were like, is there anything else I can get you? Do you need anything? That's delightful. (laughs) The one time it came in handy was because no one asked for spelling in writing. I'm going to try that actually the next time I'm late for it. Look, fuck those guys, so go for it. I dubbed the Gordon Schubert. (laughs) Nice, nice, thank you. (laughs) You have my full permission to to put those people in their place. I don't even know what, what, do you know what play is running at the Schubert Theater right now? That sham of a theater. Uh, The Schubert is To Kill a Mockingbird, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, man, I actually really like that play. <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty good. <laughs> I hated the book, but I love the play version oh, of it. Oh, that's interesting. Enough. Did you see this version, the Aaron Sorkin? No, I saw the Renton Washington, one of my friends who was an improv actor with me, was uh, was Tom, who's the, the, this is how good I am at theater, who's the person that's under trial? Oh, that guy. Um, no, I definitely don't know that guy's name, not but Atticus I know what you Finch. mean. Yeah. Not Atticus no, the Finch. No, the, the guy who's on trial. Um, <laughs> yes. Don't know his name. The one who's being accused. Yep, that guy. Yep. Hey, it's me editing, Mike, for all those theater kids out there screaming at their headphones or computers or smart speakers. It's Tom Robinson, you fucking idiot. Uh, The character that Gordon and I were trying to remember the name of was Tom Robinson. Anyway, back to the podcast. (laughs) It's a good part. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the most important. (laughs) But uh, I saw that in Washington. And then also my high school did it my senior year. Mm. Uh, and I was not in it, but I thought it was very good. Mm. I didn't audition for it because I said, this book sucks. Why would I audition for this play? And then I saw the play and I regretted not auditioning because I thought it was really nice. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, don't go to the Schubert Theater and see To Kill a Mockingbird, (laughs) even if Sorkin is great, which I assume he is. He's one of those names like that. And then I know Andrew Lloyd Webber Mm. just because my mom watched The Nanny when I was a youngster. And Maxwell Sheffield's sworn enemy was Andrew Lloyd Webber. I did not know that. I never watched that show, but that's very <laughs> funny. That, that, that he he hated because I think he was also a playwright, and he despised him. He would sure. always, in his British accent, be like Andrew Lloyd Webber, and he just hated him, and he thought he was a sham. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> 
Uh, well, Gordon, thank you so much for coming on and giving me and all the listeners some Broadway knowledge and talking it was about a pleasure. everything. If people want to find you and what you're doing and saying and writing whenever plays are back, uh, yes. where can they find you? I, I mean, we're still going. The podcast. Good, uh, yeah. There's a podcast called Stagecraft with Gordon Cox. And I talk to some folks, uh, including some people involved in uh, Harry Potter. I talked ah. to uh, the guy who originated the role of Harry, adult Harry Potter in the, oh, cool. in the show. There's a mix of guests who are from like very famous people to like, you know, maybe a composer you've never, you non-theater fans haven't heard of. So, mm-hmm. so I'm doing that and you can find me on Twitter at G Cox variety and that's about it. Awesome. Thanks. Well, thank you so much for coming on. This has been wonderful. Listeners, yeah, thank, thank you. you all for listening. No problem. And as they say in the wizarding world of Harry Potter, before they uh, leave to go ab- in between the two nights of plays that they have to see <laughs> wizard on. <laughs> Hey, do you want some new merch, but you don't want to wait for shipping times or anything like that? You want your stuff immediately? Well, you're in luck because Potterless and the other Multitude shows have digital merch available. Potterless has wallpapers and text tones, and I made an official violently purple color for the backgrounds, so it's legit. We have set in stone what violently purple means. I have ringtones available, and the other shows have great stuff too. Join the Party has music. Next Stop has music. Spirits has some awesome wallpapers. There are so many goodies out there. All you need to do is go to multitude.production slash merch to check it all out now. Potterless was created by Mick Schubert. It is hosted by Mick Schubert. It is edited by Mick Schubert. It is produced by Mick Schubert as well as Vicky Garcia, Aaron Johnson, Klauser, Lopu, Marchismo, Samantha Rose, Wanson, Filio, Rosemary, Dodge, Marie, Lisa C. Keen, Romina Rivadanera, Audra, Eleanor, Curlin, Nikita Power, Ali Madsen, Amelia Krause, Sarah Nick, Ben Silver, Rachel Guthrie, Zachary Pulido, Orca Grower, Vivian, the Owl, Haley Hastings, Moser, Alex Consilver, John Kotker, Noel Basile, Liz Bigelow, Brandon Pickens, Claire Spencer, Rory Collier, Veronica Bartova, Lada Bartova, Noah, Tracy Toya, Colleen, Jennifer, Mark Lou, Fried, AJ Svensson, Summer Rathel, Justin Montero, Jacob Parrish, Maya Gray, Mark Body, Polly Burge, Zena Rosnowski, Harlan Haskins, Noelia, Addie, Nikki, Harris, Kine, Amanda, Alfred, Alicia, McLaren, Kafir, Shaltiel, Sarah, Shedder, Marta, Morrison, Eileen, Gazesh, Keegan, Curran, Mr. Folk, Maya, Flor, Sake, Sirius, Garris, for Georgia, Davis, Skyler, Lily, Edel, Ryan, Professor, Threat, Ellie, Hoskop, Chova, Elizabeth, Christofferson, Michael, David, Yordi, Kelly, Otilio, Kerry, Crumpler, Connie, Binkowski, Jen, Went, Nedry, OS, Will, Husser, Samantha, Lentz, Aurora, Fruhoff, Marco, Zapata, Courtney, Marie, Grieger, Ashen, Gabrielson, Brittany, Gutierrez, Fail on the Meadows Family, Ginny from the Block, McKenna, Tweedy, Heather, Langeal, Brad, Harding, Brianna, Kusumano, Kevin, Stewart, Lori, McDonald, Chrissy, Tew, Jarls, Fiven, Ashley, Enstrom, Peter McGrath, Sophie, Duda, Jen, and Rose. Dow, Callahan and Darius, Leah Reed, Melissa Robb, Bella Barlack, Melanie Demi, Elizabeth Yu, Britt McLean, Becca Spry, Reese Dignan, Adam Graham, Joseph Torp, Lily's mom, T-Run Money, Madison, Kyle, Don't Call Me Ninfedora, GK Have It Your Way, Sabrina Balsiker, Sophia Loves Pigs, Farzan Jarabat, Melanie DeGrave, David Douglas, Matt Barger, Okamahime, Yimki, Bony Pony, Jacob Rossitano, Kelly Gillespie, Taco Bluefish, Rike Mangor, Jensen, Taylor Payne, Rachel Mobbs, Megan Moon, Alicia Chapman, Riley Kittis, Colleen Waters, Laurel Happy, Rossanne Batamana, Erica Butler, Miranda Hurley, Landon Schwausch, Kendra Hertz, Natani Page, Yogan Chanley, Darcy Alexander Harrison, Richard Johnson, Sandra Rose, Kremic Robert. Andren Kaufman, K.A. Rob, Steve Trelor, Lior Nachum, Angela Hill, Julia Buzak, Demi Lynn, Kelsey Wellis, Michael Beck, Calista Delano, she who doesn't have to be named, El Kringle, Lovecash Longer, Jennifer Terzian, Crystal Pollard, Henrika Wolf, Jeremy Elmore, Delkis, Katrina Smith, Jerrica Law, Michelle Spurgeon, Casey Canales, Megan Stempin. Let's hit 1,000 patrons now so Shubes does a European tour. Steamed Nuggets and Can't I Potter? Web design by Kelly Schubert and the music is by Bettina Campamanas. If you want to find us on social media, you can at facebook.com slash potterless, twitter.com slash potterless pod, instagram.com slash potterless podcast, and reddit.com slash r slash powderless for any and all information about the show you can go to powderlesspodcast.com for bonus content you can go to patreon.com slash powderless and for merch such as that digital merch you can go to powderlesspodcast.com slash merch if you want to tell someone about the show whether you reach out directly and text to your mom hey there's this great podcast you should check it out or you leave a rating and review online like on itunes that really does help thank you so much for listening and until next time as they say in the wizarding world of harry potter wizard on with lucky landslots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time <gasps> no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.